Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Part of the Gaps, the podcast which seeks to plug the gaps between the church and the culture. My name is Aaron Edwards. I'm joined, as always, by Andy Bannister. With his not with a Christmas hat on, he probably should have a Christmas. Hat not on with a Christmas hat on because uh, it is well. It's almost the big day, isn't it? It's uh, it's really exciting. I'd like people to think that we work so hard at part of the gaps that we've taken time out this close to Christmas to record, but we have recorded this a little bit in advance. But uh, I know it's going out with the big don't day just around them. the corner. Don't tell them. Don't, don't tell them it's sunny outside. It's um, sunny outside. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's middle of July. I wish it was sunny outside. And it's the middle of July. It's it's flipping freezing. But I, it does feel very, it does feel very Christmassy. The, you know, the food is prepared, the tree is up, the carols are, are on, and uh, and on it goes. So yes, they've been, well, they've been on, they've been on for a while, haven't they? That's right. And and the canon, the ever expanding canon of um, popular Christmas songs, of course, competing with the carols. I wish it could be Christmas every day. Uh, yeah. Which we don't really wish, yeah. No, we don't really wish. Right. Grandma got grandma got uh, got run over by a reindeer, which is not so yeah. well known over here, but you know, more of a, yeah. a North American import. But the, fairy, like the fairy tale of New York is a. Do you know one. that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because of course, um, what's his name from the Pogues died. Yeah. Shane McGowan yeah. died yeah. Yeah. recently, and I always actually find that it's quite a moving. I like that song actually. I like the band. It's also quite a trip, mm. quite a moving song actually, because because of course the other singer on that is Kirsty McColl, who died very tragically, what ten years ago now in a jet ski accident and yes. uh you know astonishing astonishing musician and uh very very tragic so yeah. you know it's one of those songs that you it's a bit of sweet really but um yeah, but yes no but no, my, my uh, in terms of the but, pogues fan i always had yes good you were a pogues fan or you weren't a pogues fan no my mum was a huge pogues fan. she's just a big irish music fan in general but um yeah the pogues uh we often heard them uh, yes, I am um, forced upon us really, but I appreciate I like the, more. I like a bit I like a bit of the pogues because I like a bit of sort of, you know, folk rock mm. and stuff. We're actually off for off uh, a day at uh, two days after recording this, we are actually off to see a Christmas concert. We're gonna see some Christmas folk music down in Bristol. It's very exciting. We're gonna go see do it. You ever do, to... pa- do you ever ever been to pantomimes? Do you ever I'm, oh pantomimes? my kids love pantomime. I am not a pantomime fan. Uh no, but one of our favourite singers is a... <laughs> the yeah one of our one of our favorite singers is a is a is a folk singer called kate rusby who does a really good christmas tour so we're off to see kate in bristol but talking to christmas music though the, the christian stuff so go on then what would be your favorite carol if you had to what pick would be my one? favorite carol. Your favorite carol i uh, we, we, we may well have the same carol so let me try and think of one i was wondering uh, if it's going to be silent night because hearing your kids oh, scream no. in the background where the silent night it would be like what you're aspiring to silent I night know. The kids have not set their back the house alive. What this is what happened when my wife is out. Um, she's out somewhere this afternoon, and so it does. It kind of I set them up to do something, but you know, there's only there's, in in a in a confined space. There's it was five of them. They they tend to find ways of being loud in one way or another. Um, but yeah, so um, I would say. Okay, let me do let me do one and a half. I'm going to cheat and do an advert oh, first. So obviously, Okoma Come Emmanuel isn't a carol. It is obviously amazing. I love the haunting element of it. I love the way it speaks forth of the coming Christ and, and, and the sense of the, the the kind of minor notes in it, which which speak of um, Israel in the wilderness and needing to uh, hearken back to the days of, of their kingdom. And that's sort of where we find ourselves as a culture and as a church in many ways um, in, in these times. But that's not really a carol. So I think as carols go... Um, I would probably say the one that you you may say. Go on <laughs> so, then. But I will actually so let me choose a different one. I, I do like God Rest You Merry, uh, gentlemen. That's a really good um, 
and actually that's something is it is it's God rest ye merry rather than like God rest ye comma merry I think is what it's supposed to be rather than God rest ye comma merry gentlemen like there's a little I, merry think, gentleman. I think you're right I you're also like that merry. I like that one because when my when my uh my daughter was was quite wee sort of three or four years old she she loved carols and would go around belting it out but it would often miss would mangle the words and so one yeah. christmas she was walking around the house blasting out very loudly uh god re- god rest ye jerry mentlemen which we quite liked <laughs> jerry mentlemen jerry mentlemen which i just like trick mentlemen something yes. like that no it's a good one yeah and uh so if i had to pick one it's funny so come oh come emmanuel because we've been you know um in family bible time this month mm. we've been singing carols instead of yeah. you know our yeah. usual selection yeah. of hymns, and uh, the kids really took to. We, it's the first year we did O Come O Come. We didn't mm. do it last last few Christmases for some reason, oh. and they really like it. And I think there's, yeah, the tune is interesting and the and the wording very powerful. But my did own, you, favorite... wait, did you did you discover before you move on to your go one? On, did you on. discover the final verse? I discovered a new verse in it when we sang. Oh, is there? Yeah, I, and this is the, look at this. Is this it the one that goes oh play oh play oh pod the gaps? <laughs> the gaps and no sadly not but we can do our own one um a consumerist version of it to get a jingle i I put it on twitter and said this is this is like a christian nationalist version which got all oh no and the phone lines are lighting up now oh oh, come desire of nations bind in one the hearts of all mankind yes bid thou our sad divisions cease and be thyself our king of peace so especially that oh come desire of nations bind in one so you think it just reminds you basically i don't want to get into it we could do a whole episode on christian nationalism some other way but people get spooked by it because they think oh that must mean christians taking over everything etc really it's like all christians ever have been singing and hoping that every knee will bow and everyone, everyone's going to come together. And, and God, Jesus is literally coming for the nations, binding them together in some way. So it's like under his authority, not under our own version of it or some political party. So it, it kind of got people a bit spooked. But I was like, why don't we sing that verse? It might be, maybe that's why, because people, people might misunderstand it. But it's just interesting that, that it's been there in such an ancient, um, yeah, an ancient hymn. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, um, yeah, so it's says my own favorite carol. It's... Uh... It's it's remained fairly unchanged over the over the years. Actually, I uh, I absolutely adore "Hark the Herald Angels" um, mm. sing for a number of reasons. I think the words are the words are, are wonderful, and I think I love the evangelists in me because I love Christmas. Good time to you know preach evangelistically. Yeah. Um, you know, it's one of those carols that has the gospel very powerfully. Yes. You know, in it, um, yes. you know, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. I mean, that's that's beautiful, and it shouldn't, shouldn't be a surprise. Written as that was written by Wesley, mm. so and adapted going, by Whitfield, by the way, the great. Herald yes, it was. You're quite right. You're absolutely yeah. right. Um, but anyway, so it's got fingerprints all over. But the other thing I like about it, I like, mm. I like a carol, I like a hymn that you can really get some oomph into. Mm. Yes, um, we've done. We did an episode a few episodes back on what's gone wrong with worship. And, yeah. you know, there's, you need to have a range of things, people. But I do think a lot of modern, you know, Christian music is a bit, is a bit, what's the right word? Wimpy is the wrong word. It hasn't <laughs> but, got a lot of oomph to it. You can't really yet, go yet, yet, behind yet it. Yeah, it is the right word. It's like, it's the, right, the wrong word is the right word. It's the right, it's the right word. You know, it's like, when it's like, in, you know, in another musical genre, you know, I like a good ballad. I like a good pop tune, mm. a bit of ballady sort of stuff to it. That's great. But I also like a great rock anthem where you can sing along in the car yeah. and just yell your lungs out. And Absolutely. Hark, the Herald Angels, you can really put some welly into that to use the... It is the, 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 the rock 
and roll of carols, isn't it? It is brilliant. I'm sure the original music, I'm sure the original music does say in the musical notation at the back, with welly. It doesn't say, you know, that's (laughs) a music, that's Latin or something. uh, 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 Whereas a more quieter sort of wimpy music would say with welby. Um, is the <laughs> that's right yeah yeah with Sorry, um, um, with so anyway no, I, I do like I do like a bit of Hark the, uh, the mm. Herald Angels um, but talking about sort of gospel stuff that was oh, in yeah. there and you mentioned Twitter um, mm. that is a sort of slightly kind of cat candid like we usually manage on this uh this this show segue into sort of some things we we're going to talk about because you my friend have been causing controversy on twitter again haven't you i mean again I mean, come on what? what you know you, you know, yeah um so, you know, yeah, you've yeah. broken away from your normal trend of posting <laughs> pictures of rainbows and kittens and glitter exactly. on twitter to saying to, to having a little spat but the I spat just recent, the, the, yeah the cat the spat videos, recent interesting issues though didn't it so yeah. Tell us about the spat and well, then and why it has a link to today and yeah. Christmas. And, yeah, um, I mean, I guess it's, it's not such things. Much a spat. For me, I guess it's not. But I guess everything in it, we're so tame and mild over here. Everything in Twitterland is a spat. Yeah, or Xland. It shouldn't be Twitter X-land. anymore. We're not. Absolutely. We're not. Yeah, I'm just Twitter. Um, so it was our good friend Jane Ozan, um, who is got her own kind of LGBT foundation. Um, in fact, the person who heard my appeal. Um, from my dismissal from the Methodist Church was part of the Jane Ozan Foundation. By the way, I just have to say, if Jane's listening, I'm sure she won't, she won't be. She's got other busy things to do. Jane, I do think you've missed the branding opportunity of the year because um, <laughs> if I was run, if I was you with your name I, and I would I, I had an, a foundation or a podcast or a blog, I would have to call it the Ozan Layer. Ah, look at that! I mean, come on, that you're—that's a pun just waiting to happen. And it probably it's complete... like a nineties theme. Ozone layer, yeah. no one says so. It's like that is a, a show your age pun, really, isn't it? Like it a, it a, is, a, but oh come um, on! I thought it was fairly. It would, it would it would work? Yeah. So I'm sure she is listening. I'm sure she's an avid part of the gaps uh, listener, and will take your marketing advice for a fee, of course. So I think you should get royalties. Well, if there's a gap on her on her on her podcast for us to appear as a guest, there'd be a hole in the ozone layer. Well, oh, there you go. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> the listeners are just trust me. I can do this for the next. It's, it's two days to go to Christmas or something. He's here all day. Go. He's here all year. He yeah. he will never stop punning. He anyway, back to you and your, your and your and your BFF. So this, so this yeah, it, yeah, my best friend Trevor. Um, so she wrote an article. I was just really surprised that Premier, um, which is the kind of evangelical news agency in the UK, and they run a magazine called Christianity Magazine. Um. I wrote an article for them about around my dismissal earlier in the year. I wrote and, a piece um, from a couple of weeks ago too. So. Yeah, you did, didn't you? What was your piece on again? Uh, my piece, my piece was on uh, Ian Hersey Ali, the um, the former oh, radical yeah, yeah, Muslim, yeah. then new atheist. Now yeah, who recently yeah. came out and announced that she's become a Christian. Came um, came out as a Christian. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, so they so they, they are so basically it is it's broadly evangelical. It's certainly not narrow evangelical, but I mean just British evangelicalism for me is in such a uh, a well beish state, shall we say. It does need a bit of welly. Um, and I think so it sort of represents a broadness, but this was even beyond British broadness levels of evangelicalism. I, I can't see how Jane Ozan is, a, is an evangelical. Um, I mean, she's like the most prominent gay marriage um, advocate within the church, capital C, within in the UK, I would say, because she's she had her own, she was not only like a an advisor to the government on LGBT issues, um, until not too long ago, she was also had a particular role within the Church of England and, and Synod of, of of bringing that forward and set up her own kind of movement to try to bring gay marriage in. So it isn't just like you know an evangelical who is loose 
on on gay marriage and kind of thinks, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll be okay with this. I think that's a bad thing anyway and isn't an evangelical position to even say, oh, I'm okay or I'm not going to make a fuss about it. I think you should make a fuss about it. Even so, she goes even beyond that and is like leading the charge to bring gay marriage in is like critiquing the Church of England because they're not being progressive enough. I mean, so by any standard of what we usually colloquially refer to evangelical as, she is not that. But that's how she described herself. So on her description on the Premier article, it's like, I'm a, I'm a gay Christian, um, an evangelical, yeah, I just happen to be gay. It's fine. What's the, what's the, what's the deal, guys? Come on. Um, and so her article was actually in response to John Stevens, the FIEC um, head honcho um, guy, who'd been speaking about gay marriage as being a kind of a salvation issue um, and why it needs to be opposed. She had actually then come down, and, and it's almost like a response piece to that, to say, actually, you don't have to repent. Repentance is not a salvation issue. So here's the quote that I put on Twitter. If This is from her. If repentance is not a salvation matter, Christians can agree to disagree on what is or is not sinful without it causing all sorts of ruptures in the church, which is just really interesting because on, on the surface you can go, oh, Maybe, maybe is is that is that opening up a new door that we haven't really thought about in terms of repentance and said, um, oh, is salvation is repentance an issue, a hill to die on, as it were? Is it something you do have to repent? Well, yes, you you do. That's literally what it means to follow Jesus to sort of turn away from your. I'm sure every evangelical has ever believed really and, and and every evangelist has ever preached when they've been preaching the gospel. So you have to turn away from your old life when you're recognizing what it means to follow Christ anew. When you get baptized, you die to your old old life and you, and you get resurrected in Christ when you come up out of the water. That's just central to what it means to be a Christian, let alone an evangelical. So it's interesting that she no longer thinks that's a salvation matter. But then what, what I was interested in was just to say, okay, um, so it doesn't matter if you repent, apparently. That's not a salvation issue. As long as you believe certain things about Jesus and presume she must have to tick some kind of biblical authority box with with 78 caveats to, to get out of all the passages which undermine her. Um, so what about sin? So if, if God's happy with gay marriage and gay sex and all the rest of it, and he's just so, the gospel's so great, it covers that. Um, and you can carry on doing it and he's fine. What about all the other sins? What about the sins that progressives don't like? What about let's say racism, or let's go even closer to home, homophobia. What if you were just a gay-hating Christian? You said, I'm a Christian. I just happen to really hate gay people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to go and like physically harm them. Just in my head, that's what I'm going to think, because I believe the passages in the Bible allow me to do that, because God really abominates homosexuality. So anyone who's out and proud and gay, I'm allowed to hate them on God's behalf. And do we get to say, well, it's not a salvation matter. They don't have to turn away from that. They're allowed to hate their fellow brother in Christ or sister in Christ or just fellow person because um, they've decided it's not a salvation issue. Because presumably homophobia wouldn't be a salvation matter. Um, if, if gay marriage is not a salvation matter, then neither is homophobia or racism or lots of other stuff, which you'd go, gosh, we, we, would, we would want people to turn away from that. And progressives would want them to turn away from that. So I just found it kind of intriguing. And here was her response. And I'll let you jump in mm-hmm. or I can wrap it on further and on. But her response was, um, the message of outrageous grace, capital O, capital G, outrageous grace, is never more needed, it seems, for it is grace that is so often missing in so much of what is posted on Twitter. So that was her response. Hmm. Outrageous grace. And, and so therefore, I'm, the ba- I'm obviously the bad guy because I'm saying you're not, you know, you should repent, actually, of your sin. 
but actually no outrageous grace covers it yeah and uh we're not gracious enough to one another on twitter gosh well lots that could be said there i mean i think the first thing i just think i'm always i i, I always try and pass everything through a lens of going you know what is there i can at least affirm and be positive yeah. about before before the critique i think that is joking aside that's a helpful thing and i think that's part of the problem on social media yeah. on both sides and actually the funny thing is on the social media piece i agree with her i think social media is a horrendous place um because it is easy to misrepresent um you know you've experienced people sure jumping is. on things that you've said mm-hmm. i saw an example the other day where i think somebody had accused you of wishing that gay people didn't exist and i remember thinking <laughs> i don't think aaron's actually ever said that Anywhere, but then the other side, I've equally seen people on 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 our on our side of the theological camp. You know, conservative evangelicals saying things, and I find myself thinking that is perhaps not the way to be be, be doing that. There is nasty stuff on our side of the divide sometimes as 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 well. And I think social media naturally doesn't lend itself to. And often, and I often find myself reading debates on social media, thinking this is where I'd love to go down the pub with three or four people and have a spirited conversation, mm. but in person. Um, over a glass of cider over a glass of cider or a pint of old peculiar uh, or something so um so that part yes the the piece i have slightly more concerns about art is the outrageous grace thing before i come to that though one thing intrigued me of course i don't know if jane was actually saying this or whether this is a paraphrase of of, of her via you of course if the implication is that it doesn't matter you know the set the choices you make sexually because you know, Grace can cover those things. If that's what she appears to be saying, that's an interesting admission, which would be quite an admission, that mm. the gay lifestyle is in fact sinful, but it doesn't matter because Grace can cover it. Um, there are some theologically I've seen who try and go even further, don't they, and say, well, no, it's not, it's not, it's not even sinful. It's not an issue that, that, that Grace can cover it. It's an issue, this mm. is God's design. God has designed for humanity uh, you know, same-sex attraction and opposite-sex attraction and different gender identities. That's all part of God's good and perfect design. Um, and so that's a whole other conversation. But if Jane has somehow accidentally implied that she thinks it is wrong, but it's okay because Grace can cover it, well, a couple of thoughts there. Of course, firstly, I mean, Scripture addresses this, doesn't he? I mean, Paul Paul talks about in one of his letters, doesn't he, the idea of going, well, should we keep on sinning because Grace will then increase? You know, by, by no means. Um, but I think it misses the out. It misses the outra- the outrageous piece of why grace is outrageous. And we touched on it in Hark the Herald Angels, which I quoted. You know, grace is outrageous, isn't it? Because because we are sinful human beings, uh, God's response to us should be to say, you know, I cannot tolerate sin in my presence. So you may not enter my presence. You are done. It is over. That's the bad diagnosis. But the astonishingly outrageous part of the gospel is God going, but I want you in my presence. I want God and sinners to be reconciled. And the only consi- the only way that can possibly happen, because you schmucks can't do it yourself because of the mess that you're in, is for God himself, you know, incarnation and atonement, to step into history in the person of Jesus and pay that price so that our sins, be they sexual or whatever they are, can be dealt with that's the outrageousness but i think what worries me is well worries me scandalizes me and also just deeply saddens me is that grace if you don't talk about sin grace no longer becomes grace yeah if all it becomes i don't know what best tolerance if god just pats you on the head and goes it's okay i suppose don't you don't worry about it it portrays god as this slightly doddery 
you know, heavenly grandfather up there in the sky. He was like, you know what? It's all right. I'd rather you didn't do that, but come on in anyway. And with sexuality, that's one thing, but as you talked about there, you push that into another area. It gets really difficult. And, um, you know, Miroslav Volf, a writer who a theologian has written lots on forgiveness and reconciliation and the cross and all kinds of things. I remember reading a very powerful essay about him a few years ago, um, where he talked about, you know, the tradition he came from, you know, he used to, as a younger man, react against the idea of a God of judgment and would try and downplay that. But then he said the war in Croatia happened and he comes from that part of, he comes from the Balkans. And he says, I looked at what happened. I suddenly realized I would have to react, he says, you know, in horror at a God who doesn't act in judgment when there is evil, you know, when there's people raped and murdered and villages torched mm. and children uh, you know violently uh you know killed and so on and so forth mm. the idea that god would just pat the perpetrators on the head and go don't mm. worry about it it's okay mm. that's not that's not loving mm. or kind or compassionate it's monstrous mm. Mm. and the outrageousness of grace is that each one of us deserve you know death and eternal mm. separation from god mm but the mm. God has done something about it. And so in, it's so sad that Jane has almost got like half of it, but she's missed the other half. And the half that she's thrown away, the half that she's left with, then becomes meaningless and turns mm. to dust and ashes in her hands. Yeah. And, and in many ways, you're maybe even being too kind to her in saying she's got half of it because um, though you're, you are, it's, it's appropriate, as you say, to, to see where she's coming from and where she's getting it from. But I think I think she kind of knows what she's doing with this and and with calling Mm. yourself an evangelical because i think if you're more consistent you would just lose the evangelical tag i think people recognize those are the churches where there's people and there's money and there's influence um because the liberal churches don't grow and they don't seem to have a great amount of prominence they tend to infiltrate institutions rather than build them i find um and we could do a whole episode on that. We talked about that earlier, but we won't go into that now. But that, coming I, to I, a I, podcast in 2024 <laughs> near exactly. you, um, I, I think I think there's something a bit more devilish going on, um, just because of the brazenness of it all. Like I just think the way in which um, the likes of her will come and try to impose something and make people feel if they don't accept it, like they are really horrible people. I mean, I was in a debate with her and Steve Chalk two or maybe two and a half years ago by the Religion Media Centre. And I just remember her throwing in outrageous comments to try to undermine the idea that you would oppose um, the conversion therapy ban um, by saying, citing examples that just no one has ever, I've just never heard of a Christian ever think of this. She's an example of, I've heard of people where, where a pastor has raped somebody in order to convert them to heterosexuality. And I was just like, what do you expect me to do with that? That, that no one thinks that's the case. You know, that that's not what I'm thinking is the case. And any evangelical, I would happily say probably in the entire world. No, definitely anyone who's actually evangelical couldn't possibly think that that's a good idea. And so to cite that in order is almost just to try to get attention to use the very worst example so that then you're the person who's disagreeing with you is siding with this absolutely vile example you've, you've just stated, even though it's completely unrealistic and I don't even think it's necessarily substantiated. So in fact, I think I've heard other people say it isn't substantiated. So those kind of things, I think there's, there's tricks to some of this stuff and we have to be wise to when, when we, when we oppose things and go, look, you're, you're just, you're just being a charlatan or you're, or you're trying to, 
wheedle something in here which doesn't belong and i think you shouldn't be doing this you shouldn't be getting away with it um and so in her case she may have half of it on paper but she's actually lost the entirety of it in the whole because it's something that has to come as a as a piece i would say rather than half of because because curiously the other thing i think that happens is i mean if it is this like wonderful gracious attitude i just don't see great actual graciousness in action from the people who are talking about grace so i think it's selective when they want to talk about the outrageousness of grace if you oppose it and say i think that's wrong or if you say something crazy like homosexuality is invading the church well you don't get shown too much grace you you're actually seen as unchristlike unkind ungodly um and condemning and horrible um so they become actually like pharisees which is they become more legalistic when they're challenging and that's kind of how you know that you're not actually dealing with with grace and as, as you rightly said earlier there is a genuinely there's a genuine sense in which the outrageousness of grace is a is something we we can focus upon even if maybe as evangelicals mm. we've we might have given ourselves a little bit too much to that kind of ott language over time so that leaves us open to a radical approach like we use radical just as though it's always good and i i've used it before and i like the idea of it you know you can get into the root of stuff um whole wholesale root and branch etc but it can yeah. leave you open to being only only the exciting crazy things like francis chan's book crazy love things like that these these are not bad things but they can lead you into this sort of hyperbole so I that agree. A, a liberal person could come along and go hey isn't it outrageous god so god so loves you he doesn't care about even repenting he doesn't care about his grace is so outrageous I know you crazy religious Pharisees, always conservatives are seen as the Pharisees. I know you think it's crazy, but that's how crazy God is. He's so outrageous. And if you've got a whole generation of evangelicals who've been growing up in youth groups, being told how crazy the gospel is and how outrageous grace is in a different sense, they could be susceptible to going, oh, yeah, like God's grace is outrageous. It is amazing. Why wouldn't I? Why why am I such a mean-spirited Pharisee, et cetera? Because Jane Ozan told me I am. Well, of course, the irony is that I think... um... I mean, you're right that I think I think the way labels are thrown around, I find interesting. And I think with the case of let's start with the Pharisees, I think it's always interesting to go, okay, what was the what was it the Pharisees were doing that was the was the problem for Jesus? Why was it that he he consistently went for them and criticised them? And I think I think it's two things, isn't it? As you read the Gospels, firstly, it's the hypocrisy. Hypocrisy was a massive issue for Jesus. When there's a disconnect between what you say. And, and 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 how you live that was a big issue but i think the other thing with the pharisees was the fact they were people who had become wedded to a system and if you didn't you know believe their particular narrow version of the truth you were you know excluded from from what god was doing now mm. you can see how if you're a liberal you can go ah those conservatives but of course the, the thing flips around the other way around of going oh. you know some of the conversion therapy thing jane azan and, and steve chalk and others would have pastors locked up who don't yeah. believe their view of of gender? <laughs> the idea that if someone comes to you, you know, under her under her little sort of dream, someone comes to you as a pastor and says, well, "I'm wrestling with my gender and stuff and my sexuality," mm-hmm. would you just pray for me? Nothing more than that. Would you just pray for me and mm-hmm. to go, you know, Jane would happily have you tossed into the slammer and the key thrown away to go. Now mm-hmm. that that doesn't look like Pharisaical. I don't know what is. But then the other thing, I I, I thought your point about. I think, yeah, the evangelicals are partly greased the skids here with our use of language. Partly, you know, what's going on is I think we've, um, you know, because there's a danger that when you hear the gospel a lot, you become numbed to it, you become blasé. That happens in evangelical churches. So you're right, preachers and writers 
you feel the need to put in words like amazing and outrageous and radical because you're mm. you're trying to motivate people. Um, although to my liberal friends, I I forget who pointed out that if you take a, if you take conservative, if you take the C out of radical, you just get radial, which is a thing that just spins and spins and spins and goes nowhere. <laughs> um, so I, I I quite like that one. So so I think um, yeah, I think you're you're right. And then at the back of my mind in all of this was um you know was dear old Diedrich Bonhoeffer and the whole cheap grace thing because mm-hmm. I think I think grace what slightly worries me is, is the more I pass the outrageous grace thing that that you quoted from Jane and she's not unique we're not picking on her unfairly I think others have drifted into this is you're not careful the grace in that becomes about us not about what God has done and it becomes mm-hmm. grace becomes the way that we should be treating others and welcoming others and accepting others um which is a very cheap watered version down down of it right and there's a very famous quote from from beatrice uh, beatrice <laughs> beatrice it's like beatrix potter <laughs> from, from beatrice, the, the, tra- the trans version of beatrix the, the trans yes beatrice bonhoeffer yes beatrix <laughs> beatrix bonhoeffer <laughs> where bonhoeffer famously said didn't he he said uh he said uh he said you know cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, by contrast, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has, it is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all of his goods for. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. And I think by contrast with the you know, the kind of version of grace you see kicking around today, mm. the idea that you might want to pluck out your eye to get hold of God's true grace, people go, are you insane? Why would you want to do that? It's just, Mm. it's all right. It's just, just tag along. It's okay. And I think Mm. that's, it's cheap grace. I think Mm. it's cheap grace Mm. all over. And I think, I think there's a massive human tendency to it. It's a pattern that repeats down through the, down through the ages. And of course I'm struck by the fact Bonhoeffer was not some just random quote for me. It's appropriate because the, one of the big fights in his day, of course Mm. you had the, 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 uh, the, the German church, the mainstream German church was playing with the idea. We can collaborate with the Nazis. It's okay. We don't need to take a stand. Why would you do that? Look what will happen if you take a stand. Don't take a stand. Don't be ridiculous. We can just go along with this whole final solution Mm. thing. Um, or at the very least we won't ask any questions. Won't be told any lies. And Bonhoeffer and the, and the confessing church is like, well, no, you damn well can't do that. That there is a mm. price to grace. And if the price of that is that we're going to have to lay our lives down for the sake mm. of this, it's worth it mm. for what we, yeah. we get. But the, mm. you know, from the, some of the progressive wing of Christianity today, it feels like the German speaking church all over again. The culture is charging headlong into, you know, hedonistic sexuality and everything else. Why would you want to resist that? It's going to be painful. It's mm. going to be costly and misunderstood. Just, just go along. It's okay. Mm. Um, yeah. and exactly right. And, and you know, it's funny you, men- you mentioned the Bonhoeffer and the, the Confessing Church. You think of and Bonhoeffer being a Lutheran, of course. And one of the classic Lutheran kind of approaches to how we express the gospel is that you you have to bring the law and then the gospel. So it goes law and gospel, so that you actually understand that you're under the law and you can't fulfill it, and that God rescues you and when the law condemns you um 
And I think the funny thing with, with this outrageous grace stuff, which again, I'd say evangelicals are susceptible to, is we might go, oh yeah, that is what I already believe, isn't it? But it's like, no, it isn't actually what you believe. What I don't even think that the likes of Jane Ozan are arguing for act, outrageous grace because God's grace, as we've said, is already outrageous. He, he already could kill us and probably should kill us for our sin, has killed many. Um, his wrath is real and still exists. And I think that that that's the issue that, that they don't want grace to change. They actually almost want the law to change. They want God not to have had a problem with this and that and that sin in the first mm. place so that he didn't have to die for all of those sins. So for many years, we've been thanking God that he died on the cross, amazingly, outrageously, subject of outrage, unfairly, um, so that we could be free of our sin, including sins of sexual immorality, like homosexuality. What we want to do is change the law in God's mind somehow, in, on God's tablets almost, to say, actually, um, no, we, we, we want to change that. We, we, we think that you should have changed your mind, or maybe we were wrong all along and misinterpreted it all along. Um, so they don't want to change grace at all. Grace is still grace. God still saves us regardless of what we've done. And if we repent, turn to him, he forgives us whoever we are, the, 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 you know, the vilest wretch that we may be, uh, and, and such as we all were, um, dead in our sins. And yet, the, God's grace wrenches us out of that. It lifts us out. And, and yet, she, she seems to think that we don't already know. We already know that. Like That's kind of what evangelicals have been talking about, singing about, praying about, yeah. preaching about um, for as long as we can remember. Yeah. Uh, so that's why it's, this is very subtle, and I think, devilish because i think it it's coming in to say hey look this thing that you've been like excited celebrating look it's just like that isn't it and and i just think i can see a few heads turning especially if it's in like an evangelical magazine and go oh yeah maybe you think no it's not you actually are being legalistic you're actually being a pharisee telling us that you're being this wonderful gracious jesus-like person and that we're the pharisees that's actually exactly the opposite because you want to change the law not even to change grace and that's what's actually Yes. most outrageous about all of this in the negative sense i think you're right i'm also i was also struck actually as you were talking there but i i had a sort of mental throwback to when i was uh the youth group i was in when i was sort of 12 or 13 i remember them um and i've done the uses uses of my kids actually there's a they taught as an acronym for grace which is i mean a very very old one right oh, so yeah, it goes you know you've probably heard it god's riches at christ's yeah. expense which is a great, which I love about it. It just sums up in 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 five words exactly what's going on. And I think you're, I think you're right. Ironically, when you disconnect the law piece, the sin part, the diagnosis piece, ironically, you lose grace in the process because because if there's actually nothing broken, if there's nothing that God needs mm. to forgive, there's no offence. Grace mm. isn't needed, and actually, you've substituted grace for. I don't know acceptance for for welcome, mm. and those words are there in the in, in in the New Testament. That's that that's fine to play with those, um, but they come the other side of the grace that's re- the grace that's required. Um, mm. The other thing that struck me as well, and the way you described it there, that, that for some, and I'm very careful, you know, about pointing fingers because you know Jesus had a word to say about logs and, and specks and so forth. Um, but you can still raise the issue of going. I think if you're not careful, if grace simply becomes I kind of, you know, welcome everybody, and I and I don't, I don't raise the issue of sin, and I just we let everybody in, and there I am. Um, without you realizing it, you make yourself the center of the story. You start if you're not careful, going, look at me, yeah. I'm a, I'm a moral person, I'm a virtue, I'm a virtuous person. I see, I'm welcoming everybody, no matter what their background's mm. from. And to me, a sign 
that you've got grace or beginning to get a handle on what it really is, you shouldn't be pointing to yourself. You should be pointing to Jesus. Mm. And one of the things I've said before on, on, on part of the gaps, I just find it fascinating that when you look at the Twitter feeds for, for some who are saying this kind of stuff, it's not Jesus centered. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I find it's interesting. If you go with respect and look at Jane Ozan's Twitter feed, it's all campaigning this and campaigning the other. Um, I would find it easier to process some of that if like, you know, there was a lot of, here's the gospel, here's a great presentation of it. Here's a, you know, here's a, a way of engaging with our, with our friends about, you know, what the cross is all about. None of that. It's all, it's all what she's doing and the activism and so forth. And then the other you know, of course, a uh, name who is often mentioned around this parish would be would be would be Steve Jork, and you mentioned him earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting is, you know, one of the first big controversies that Steve caused was his book from a few years ago, "The Lost Message of Jesus," yeah. where he completely misunderstands the atonement. I mean, to go, Steve, yeah. bless him, as a social activist. Theologically, it's like watching a, a you know a gorilla trying to trying to pack China. It's just there's bits everywhere, um, and and to go his you know his description of that in his book of the of the of, of penal substitution, the idea that you know Jesus is dying for our sin on our behalf is, is celestial child abuse. I remember reading that and going, Steve, that's not even a decent critique. That is so ignorant and so sophomoric and so mm. just any theologian with half a brain mm. could have helped you think that was not mm. appropriate but mm. then you pull back and again try and be sympathetic and go i just think it's that he just doesn't get it and mm. so it does feel like you know it feels like for me reading swahili um that going like no one's helped me to understand this language i can't see it and so steve has mm. missed it completely um and I think actually there's a there's a real tragedy. There's a desperate tragedy there. Um, because I think the beauty of the gospel comes when you have, you know, when the, the spirit does open your eyes and you go, my word, I am a rotten, stinking sinner. I am a wretch. My, you know, we talked about favorite carols. My favorite hymn is probably Amazing Grace. Um, you know, that language of wretchedness. Um, and, you know, it's easy to look at that and go, oh, you know, John Newton and you know evangelicals that bang on about this you know have some kind of sort of you know terribly negative self image. No, it's a terribly crystal clear mm-hmm. diagnosis. Yeah, and the beauty of the gospel is going despite that diagnosis. Yeah, and we're still saved. As Tim, as Tim Keller famously liked to say, you know, the bad news of the gospel is that you're so wretched uh, that Christ had to die for you. The good news of the gospel is you're so loved he was glad to die for you. Mm. Yeah, and and the, and there's obviously ways that we can as evangelicals then then like repeat that to ourselves perpetually so that we never actually see ourselves as like redeemed forgiven yes. saints as it were and i think that's something terry virgo's helpfully who who is a brilliant on grace i'd re- i'd recommend you know terry's um sermons on grace and books on grace because he's someone who really the whole movement of new frontiers and and many other charismatic movements of the time was to rediscover grace in 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 churches that were already reformed Mm. churches who had the doctrines of grace but who didn't seem like they were enjoying grace so so enjoying the grace of god was a part of that and and that means you yes you know where you've come from so you know that that atonement was required and, and the wretch was saved but the wretch was saved and made into a saint and made into god's bride for whom he died and therefore, the holiness of that bride matters. So, restoring the church matters to who, to who she is, and, and and the full holiness of what of um, of, of the bride for whom Christ died. Um, and at the same time, you're 
yeah, you're proclaiming that to others. You're, you're evangelizing and telling them, yes, you need to understand that you are a wretch without Christ and you're dead in your sins. But once you become a Christian, there's a whole, you're a new creation. Um, and, and that's wonderful. I, it almost seems like, I wonder if people have inherited this language of grace, this big emphasis on grace, which is so wonderful. And it, it's, it's less controversial, I guess, because if you tell someone you're loved by God, no one's going to tell you off, are they? Uh, and, and tell you that, you know, have you arrested because you told them that God loved them too much? Um, so, but people needed to hear that in a significant way. But the whole generation hears that and then uses these these kind of radical, outrageous language, goes through youth culture, which I'm sure Jane Ozan has. Steve Chalk certainly did. He was certainly mm-hmm. a cool, hip, youth worker type pastor. And suddenly, you know, graduated his way out of evangelicalism and thought, oh, actually, maybe I'm so great that maybe it's kind of crazy that God had to like, die for me in some way uh, like this maybe actually that's kind of cruel and i'm so almost Mm. self-centered that if i was god i wouldn't do it like this if i was jesus i wouldn't want him to have to punish me for that basis because surely the god that i've inherited in my enjoyment of the grace of god my enjoyment of being a saint um they kind of forget where they came from in many ways so though though lots of evangelicals have a problem of perpetuating being the wretch which they're actually not anymore um, others have inherited like a little bit of of the kind of fruits mm. of what grace can offer, that kind of confidence in who you are in Christ. And they go from that place and completely forget why they were in Christ, how they got there, um, and therefore can, you know, under, almost reverse engineer the gospel mm. so that it doesn't, it didn't actually take them out of, they weren't actually so bad after all, maybe they yeah. didn't have to. And therefore we can also add, to the canon or subtract from the canon of what the law is and what sin uh, what the law condemns in terms of sin Mm. so it it plays all sorts of havoc but again in ways that like we almost have an open door to that because we've 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 celebrated this way of talking for so long that it's almost like some evangelicals who are younger maybe who haven't thought so much about it are going to be a bit defenseless against it because it's very emotive yeah do you know it's funny because we sort of begin drawing the threads together here i think this this is interesting it brings us back almost to where we began because we talked about oh come oh come emmanuel you know how that some of the imagery in that story is very old testament you know about israel having gone a got astray and waiting 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 for the coming of god to to restore what's been lost and of course mm. one of my one i think the key passages me in the old testament is that place in deuteronomy anyway god says to the children of israel you know don't you start thinking <clears throat> that the reason I chose you is you're special, that you somehow stand out from the nations and that's why you're chosen. Mm. Um, mm. My choosing is an act of grace. And then, of course, the rest of the Old Testament is the story of they they, they do forget and they do go astray. Mm. But there's those mm. warnings in Deuteronomy about telling your children what God has done for you. Tell your children the story of how you were rescued from Egypt and how God brought you through. And I think as evangelicals, I think you're dead right, which is why we need to remember and not get complacent um, we need to be telling our children, we need to be telling the next generation, this is what it means to be saved. This yeah. is what God has done for you. Don't ever forget. Don't ever start thinking that you're in God's kingdom because somehow you're nice and special and you're doing God a favor. The more that you remember, <clears throat> the more you pass on that story of what God has done for you in mm-hmm. Christ, the more that you'll set the next generation whether that next generation is the next generation of Christians, folks who just come to Christ, whether it's for those of you who have children or grandchildren or nephews or nieces who are growing up in the faith, the importance of making sure they know what it means to be saved by by grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Because I think you're right. I think I think we've taken that for granted historically, and then it produces, if you're not careful, that strange fruit. I was also reminded of that, um, we talked before on the show about that, 
that famous um, <coughs> prediction by the 19th century atheist Friedrich Nietzsche, who talked about, um, you know, he could imagine a society growing up that while it had thrown off God, it held yeah. on the Christian idea of judgment, but forgot the Christian idea of forgiveness. And I think mm. many have said he's mm. described 21st century cancel culture beautifully, um, <laughs> which is incredible. But the one might flip that around and go that there's also, if you're not careful, you know, a generation growing up who forgotten judgment and yeah. just held on to forgiveness and isn't God lovely and cuddly mm. and stuff. Mm. And I'm so constantly reminded, Aaron, that you have to hold those two together. And one of my you know, one of my favorite books on the cross, I, I mean, I read it every couple of years or so just to refresh my memory, John Stott's The Cross of Christ, mm-hmm. as that book does just such a magnificent job of setting those two doctrines side by side of, of human depravity and sinfulness and God's mm-hmm. forgiveness and grace and how those two things come together at the cross. Um, and the moment you play down either half of that equation, you end up in trouble. You either end up in a yeah, terrible legalism and uh, just incredibly devastating view of, of humanity and very negative with no hope. Or if you pull, ping out the other, you end up with you know taking sin very flippantly and not mm. seriously at all, and actually not grateful. Because if we didn't really require rescuing, you know, you end up looking at the cross and going, "Well, I suppose at best, thanks God, but you didn't really need to do that." Or you end up concluding that Jesus was nuts because why did he have to go through all that? Yeah, you know, setting um, a nice example for us. Yeah, yeah. Or if he wanted yeah. to show us he loved us, couldn't he just send us a box of chocolates and some flowers <laughs> rather than you know get himself killed? That's right. Yeah, and that, and, that, and that kind of brings it, bringing, bringing it back to Christmas. It's sort of, um, that's the point of why the incarnation was necessary. It culminates in the cross and resurrection. Um, so we're not getting ahead of ourselves at Christmas of talking about the cross and resurrection because even in the in the nativity uh, narrative, um, we know that this is about light coming into darkness. I mean, like Jesus comes into a place with horrendous darkness, a place where you have rampant infanticide, like we have today. Mm. We, we, you know, th- th- there's very dark stuff going on when Jesus is is being born, and, and it just re- it shows you it's not just the the nice kind of Victorian postcard, Mika Mile situation with a with beautiful lighting and everything. Of course, there there is a reality to this which um which bes- it really speaks into why Jesus had to come and why he had to die ultimately and, and to conquer sin and death forever. So I think that that's why it's so important to talk about these gospel issues, which we might relegate, not relegate, mm. just push on to Easter. Actually, these are, are of the same piece, aren't they? Christmas and Easter are related. They want to continue, which is why Handel's Messiah is such a wonderful way of yes. know, as a production that works for both in many ways. And also why I think so many of the, 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 the Christmas carols are the most powerful mm. and have the most longevity. So there's a few of the twinkly twee ones, but I think are the ones that really get to the heart of that. And I, you know, I said at the start that my, um, one of my favorite carols is Hark the Herald Angels. The other one that I love, Aaron, and as someone who often gets to preach evangelistically at Christmas, which is a real privilege, I often actually end uh, when I preach around Christmas. Mm-hmm. I love citing the last verse of um, A Little Town of Bethlehem because it's a, it's a sort of gospel invitation you know, built into it. It goes, O holy child of Bethlehem, mm-hmm. descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell, who come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. Mm. And I think that, you know, that prayer for Christ to come and enter in, cast out our sin, make us anew, and then abide with us in relationship as God with us. I mean, that is what Christmas really is all about. So on that note, Mm. Mm. that's a great place to draw it to an end. So uh, from 
Aaron and I at uh, at Pod of the Gaps. We want to wish you a very, very happy Christmas, but a Christ-centered Christmas. I pray that you, this Christmas, however you're celebrating it, wherever you're celebrating it, with whomever you're celebrating it, I pray that you would know what it means to have that holy child of Bethlehem descend to you, abide with you, cast out your sin, and, and take you anew into 2024. And uh, when we'll be joining you for some new episodes, new topics, new content as ever. So from me, happy Christmas. And from Aaron, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy Christmas. Goodbye (laughs) for now. (laughs) Oh, holy child.